It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps could give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Last time, in chapter 5, We saw that Babylon fell. King Belshazzar was a foolish king. He actually was the king regent. We discussed that. He was the prince who was in charge of the city. And the city fell after the Lord announced it through the handwriting on the the wall. History and the scripture tells us it was basically given over without a fight. King Belshazzar was slain. And history tells us that the king Nabonidus fled for a time, but only a short time. He was eventually brought back to Babylon and executed. And it said in verse 31 of chapter 5 that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And we see in verse 1 of 6 that we're talking about Darius's administration. Now, history does not refer to a king at this time named Darius of Persia. We've talked about this last time some, but just to remind you, In 550 BC, there were two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. The Persians and the Medes kind of went back and forth with each other for a long time. Eventually, a man named Cyrus the Great overthrew the Medes and absorbed them into the Babylonian kingdom, or excuse me, the Persian kingdom. Got to get used to that. And he gave them high rank in the, the empire, although make no mistake, Persia was in charge. So, we know, that was 550 B.C. We're sitting here in chapter 6 at 539 B.C. And the question is, if we know that Cyrus was the king at this time historically, who is this Darius? Well, there are a couple of options to this. The first option is, as we saw with Belshazzar, Belshazzar is called the king, although he was the second ruler in the kingdom. He was functioning like a king, although if we were to go back to ancient European terminology, there's only one king, and that would have been Nabonidus, but the Bible's a little more flexible. So it could be that Darius the Mede was a lesser ruler who was given the governance over Babylon, so that it's, it, you could see this as a prize being given to the Medes, who were, remember, subordinated in this empire, but were still a big part of it, while Cyrus continued to conquer the rest of the world. There are several Bible scholars who believe that Darius was Cyrus. If you look at verse 28, just keep your eyes down to the end of this chapter, it says that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, There are a couple ways you can read that. The first and most one obvious one would be that they are following after each other. But the Hebrew there with the, the vav that connects them can mean two other options. It can mean, number one, that the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So they're referring to what would have been his throne name, Darius, and his more common name, Cyrus. They were the same person. Or it could be that these were two different people that were reigning concurrently, as in Darius was the lesser ruler, Cyrus was the greater ruler, and Daniel reigned or prophesied during both of those times. So there are some other options there, too, that people have put out, but I think those are the best. Uh, The Bible very often has been accused of being false because there are certain things it mentions that other history doesn't mention. But remember, the Bible is a primary source. So the idea that we have no historical reference to Darius is not true because it's right in your lap. So we're waiting for archaeology and the rest to catch up to that. And maybe, uh, I don't know, in 50 years, we'll have a very good answer to this question. But for right now, there are some good ones for you to look at. But anyway, he, he puts 120 satraps, which was their word for governor or official, over the kingdom of Babylon. 
And this is actually uh, corroborated because in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that the king of Persia had 127 provinces. So this is actually uh, very close to what the rest of the Bible testifies. And over those 120, he put three high officials. You'd imagine they would be over 40, each one of them. And Daniel, remember, had been the third ruler in the kingdom very recently, but he was when Persia came in. So that's probably why he was given this place. Persia was very famous for not removing the government that was already in place when they got there, but rather trying to subordinate them to their empire. Uh, Rome would do something similar, although not as, not as magnanimous, you might say, as Persia even was. But because of the excellent spirit in him, which we know was the Holy Spirit, Daniel was advancing above even those top three guys, even at his age. Daniel is in his 80s at this point. He was taken out of Jerusalem at 605 BC. This is 539 BC. Daniel is an old man now. And so we look at Daniel. Daniel's situation is exactly what we want as Christians. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. Don't forget, 1 Peter 2 verse 11 reminds us, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the lusts of the flesh. Jeremiah 29 7 told those exiles, and that therefore applies to us, that they were to seek the welfare of the city to which they've been exiled. That's your biblical permission to be patriotic, you might say. But this is exactly what we want, to be honoring the Lord, but also to do well in the world and to be recognized for doing well. There is certainly nothing wrong with either of those things. So we see Daniel as a faithful exile was being honored and recognized and that's what we want. What does that take to get there? And the answer is not going to be satisfying to your flesh. I'll just tell you right now. And it will also expose you to persecution. But pretty much anything worthwhile does. So let's continue looking at verse 4 and 5 here. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. These guys bunch of weasels, aren't they? Rather than look at Daniel as a good example, be grateful that for once there's a good man in charge of the kingdom, aspire to be like him, maybe even aspire to exceed him, they say, let's bring him down. And that, that is what a lot of people would rather do. Rather than make themselves better, do a better job, strive to aim higher, they just want to bring down the person doing better than them. There are a lot of People that will do this on the internet with preachers they don't like. But they try to find something to, in our modern terminology, cancel Daniel. They're trying to get rid of him. So they say, well, let's just go through his stuff and see what he does. We're all corrupt. We're all reprobate. So he's been in government for so long, you know there's skeletons in his closet. But the more they dug, the more they found out, this guy's clean. This guy has managed to last this long in a pagan court without doing anything that was worthy of being removed. The only thing that stood out 
from Daniel was his devotion to his God, which defied their culture. I mean, this has been the story from the beginning. I'm not going to eat the king's delicacies. We're not going to bow down or worship the golden image. I'm going to tell the king exactly like it is, and I'm not going to withhold anything. I'm going to seek his welfare because God placed him over me, but I'm not going to budge on the things of God. This is what Psalm 37 tells us, right? Entrust your way to the Lord, and he will bring forth your righteousness as the noonday. So they say, if we're going to have to bring him down, we've got to do something religious. Because that's the only thing weird about him. This is similar to what Peter says in his epistle. He said, you get no credit for suffering as an evildoer. So some Christians will do the wrong thing and then complain they're being persecuted. So I was stealing from my job and now my boss found out and he fired me. It's because he hates Christians. Uh, no, because you were stealing. But he said, but if you suffer as a Christian, that is a noble thing. So when they come for the churches and they say things like, well, these Christian churches, they believe that other religions are going to hell. Oh, I can live with that sort of attack. Well, they believe that somebody doesn't repent of their sins, that they're separated from God. Well, I'm okay with that kind of heat. If I'm going to be opposed, if I'm going to be canceled, you can't take anything away from me. It's all right here. Then you know what? I'm okay with that. And this is why Satan is opposing Daniel. You've got to get this now. What What is Satan's plan here? Because we're going to look at this in chapter 10 especially, that behind every working government and authority structure, there is a spiritual battle going on. And when somebody like Daniel gets placed in an influential position, you can believe that God is behind it. And when people come at a person like that and try to bring him down, you can believe that the devil is behind that. Now, why does Satan want to get rid of Daniel? Daniel is not trying to overthrow Persia. He's not trying to bring the king down. But what is he doing? He is setting an example to the remainder of the exiles in Israel. And not only that, he converted a king or two to worship of the Most High God. Ephesians 6 verse 12, you know, tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Read that for the first time to my son, and he thought that was pretty cool. He's like, oh, I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, that sounds scary. I'm like, yeah, but it's not because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world, right? The devil is only interested in winning spiritual battles. Let me say that again. The devil is only interested in winning spiritual battles. He does not care so much about your life. He cares about your soul. That's why the devil will very often give people a pass on all kinds of things, but try to wreck their soul. Or somebody's life seems to be going good, and the minute they start going to church, everything falls to pieces. It's not a coincidence. So if the battle that we've got to fight in order to succeed, as Daniel did, is spiritual, how do we win that conflict? So we've reframed this. We were talking about how do we succeed in exile, which we are in. Well, we look at the spiritual side of this. It's only going to be through a spiritual fight. You say, well, how do I win a spiritual fight? Well, we're going to see because the attack that Satan brings reveals what Satan fears. Sometimes that's true in in battle or in football or in business strategy. The thing you go after first is the thing you're most afraid of. So look at this in verse 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement, you might say by conspiracy, to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials, all the high officials, they lied, of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction 
that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Well, they come and they lie. And there's a lot of them. That word for coming before the king can mean that they crowded before the king. There's a whole bunch of them. And they say, all of us have gotten together and we all have unanimously agreed on this course of action. Which, of course, was not true because Daniel had not. And his dissenting voice would have made quite a difference in this room. So we can assume he's not there. And they say, we're, we want, we've got a loyalty pledge for you, King Darius. We know that you just took over the kingdom and people are still a little sore about losing to Persia. So listen, you do this, it'll establish your authority. It'll force people to come to you. And they believe that the kings were representatives of the gods. So they say, listen, they have to come and ask you for something or they have to pray in your name, King Darius. This is much like what the early Christians were forced to do in burning incense to an image of Caesar and declaring Caesar is Lord. It's like, that's just so easy. It's just, you know, it's just something you got to do. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. No big deal. It wasn't because it was spiritual. And they try to get him in here because the Persians had unchangeable laws. Esther 1.19 also references these unchangeable laws of the Medes and the Persians. And there were a few reasons why they did this. The first reason was to indicate that they had divine insight. When our king makes a rule, he doesn't make a mistake because the gods are with him, so we don't change them. It also was intended to delay the process of legislation a little bit. Say, once you make a law, you can't change it, so slow down. Which is exactly what he doesn't do in this passage here. This is spiritual warfare. Because if you're operating in the flesh, a commandment about prayer means nothing to you. But the devil is attempting to either get Daniel killed or stop him from praying. It's interesting how those two things are linked together in this passage. Now, why is this? Because in chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel is going to get down in sackcloth and ashes and pray for the Lord to restore the exiles from the empire back to Jerusalem. And God is going to listen to Daniel's prayer and move upon Cyrus's heart to send the Jews back. So the devil knows it's been almost 70 years. Cyrus is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. So Daniel is here. And when Daniel prays, things happen, man. So we've got to get rid of him. Either get him out of office or stop him from praying. I'd be okay with either option. Same thing with you, by the way. When Satan wants to attack someone, when Satan moves on a culture, when he moves on a church, when he moves on a family, the first thing he does is pull the plug on prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was about to go to the cross and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But when Jesus came back from prayer for the first time, what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping. They'd prayed with Jesus before, but they were sleeping because the devil was working to bring them down. You don't think that the Sandman devil was out there trying to make them fall asleep? Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the devil will do this to your life. Try to leverage boredom. I'm just so, I don't want to pray. It's boring. Or circumstances. We're just too busy to pray. Or your mood. I just don't really feel like praying today, as if that had something to do with it. 
Or guilt. Maybe you've sinned today. I'll pray tomorrow when I haven't sinned. God doesn't want to listen to somebody that yelled and cussed at somebody today. God doesn't want to hear a prayer from someone that looked at pornography today. God doesn't want to use your example. Which, that's exactly when you should be praying, isn't it? He'll use your shame. I'm no good. I don't know anything about this. I go to church, but all these people are so spiritual. I don't know anything about it. Or your pride. You're upset with God. He didn't do what you wanted last time, so you're not going to come and pray. I can do this myself. Prayers for losers. The devil tries to get us to stop praying anytime he wants to make a move. Much like an, an army will try to jam the communications of the target before they go to war. But Darius signs this law. Man, it's like the crack of doom when you read it there. It's a short little sentence in verse 9. And Daniel is once again in trouble. He had some disruptive early years in his life, in his ministry, in his occupation. Things had kind of calmed down. He got a lot of cool revelations about the future. And now in his old age, they're at it again. So what is he going to do? Well, you know the story. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I love that. He didn't stop. He didn't complain. He didn't hide. He didn't change a thing. Daniel went home, threw open the windows, got down his knees where everybody could see, lifted his hands and began to pray. And you, you don't think these guys had some people watching? Of course they did, because we're going to see next week in verse 11, they're going to tattle on Daniel. Open towards Jerusalem, because in 1 Kings 8 verse 30, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon had said to the Lord, when your people are in exile and they pray towards this sanctuary, hear their prayers and restore them. And so Daniel in obedience to the scriptures, is doing that, praying towards Jerusalem. Notice also, he did not begin a new habit because of the crisis. That is the worst time to try and build a new habit, amen, of any kind, in a crisis. When you're really, really busy at work and having to pull a bunch of overtime hours, that is the worst time to try and start a new exercise program, isn't it? Well, how, how much more this? Now that there's persecution, I better learn to pray. No, he continued doing exactly what he had done. Psalm 55, 17 talks about morning, noon, and evening prayers. Daniel really knew his Bible, didn't he? And he imitated a lot of these things in Scripture. Prayer is the foundational spiritual building block in a person's life. We have been praying since the Garden of Eden. Everybody in the Old Testament and in your New Testament, for the most part, did not have a complete Bible. But you know what they did have? They had prayer. They had access to God under the revelation and the light they had been given. They came to the Lord in prayer and God heard them. And for some reason, we think that now that we have a complete Bible, prayer is less important. Well, we don't think prayer is less important, but we think, well, you know, as, as long as we have the book. Listen, I love the Bible and I love the scripture and you ought to read it. And I've preached that over and over again. I don't need to defend myself. But prayer will always be with you. You can get thrown in prison and no Bible given to you and still encounter the Lord. You can speak a different language than the country you're living in and you can't get hold of a Bible in yours. And you can still encounter the living God. 
You can be illiterate. You know, St. Anthony, the, the famous desert monk, couldn't read. He memorized the Bible by listening to it. Memorized the whole New Testament and great swaths of the Old Testament. And the histories tell us that people would sit and just hear him quote the scriptures to them. But then they would realize he can't read. He just took what he had and went with it. But you know what that man did? He prayed morning, noon, and night, and midnight too. Prayer is foundational. So here's the question. If prayer were made illegal today, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Look at the last 30 days. Don't talk about the next 30 days. The last 30 days, and you were dragged before the court, would your attorney say, listen, I think our best defense is to say you didn't pray that much? Or would they say, listen, I think you're pretty much sunk. You might as well just throw yourself on the mercy of the court or plead insanity. If prayer were made illegal today, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What if we looked at your attendance at the prayer meeting over the last 30 days? About your family devotions in the last 30 days? What about prayers that lasted longer than 15 seconds over the last 30 days? What I want to do today is take those wonderful excuses we all have about prayer and dislodge them. Because we're in church today. I get it. There's nobody here that's opposed to prayer. If you're opposed to prayer, then you're really in the wrong place, man. We love prayer. We love prayer. We believe in prayer. I said prayer a few minutes ago. Everybody says amen. You're nodding your heads. Okay. So then when you come to somebody and you say, well, why aren't you praying then? There's always an excuse. And it's always an excuse that sounds good to you and sounds good to other people. But Jesus hears it and goes, you've got to be kidding me. Well, I can't because my schedule. Well, I can't because of my relationships. I can't because I've got this thing going on. I can't because, you know, I just do it differently than most people. You know, I, I can't because the, with all the things going on for me, you know, there's just, it's, it's got to be different than everybody else. That's a bad way to do it, my friend. So, Daniel, when the crisis came, was found faithfully praying and refusing to stop. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little leapfrog to the New Testament. And we're going to remind ourselves what the Bible says about prayer. There's a very basic message today, which is that you should pray. And if you're already praying, pray more. And in many cases, that's an easy message to give. And many people say, oh, I hate those messages about prayer. They always make me feel bad. Well, Jesus made the disciples feel bad on the night of Gethsemane, remember? Can you not pray with me one hour? One hour, that's a long time, Jesus. One hour? Well, let's look at this. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to stir your spirit. So let's look at this. Let's start. We've got four Ps here today. Just happened. Sorry. Here's the first thing we're going to look at. The permission that we have to pray. The permission to talk to God and receive answers. We've got to start here. Because prayer is not complicated. It's talking to God and receiving answers from God. Why in the world do we think that this would work? Well, the only one who has any right to ask and receive from the Father is the Son. Amen? Jesus Christ himself is the only sinless one who has permission to go before the Father, ask and receive. So what makes us think we're so special? Some people say things like, well, people, does God hear the prayer of non-Christians? How about, does God hear the prayer of anybody? Well, here's the answer. By Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, he has brought us into himself. You have the same access to pray and the same guarantee of an answer that Jesus does. 
And if that makes you uncomfortable, it sounds too strong. Look at what Jesus said in John 16. John 16, 23 through 24. This is the Last Supper. Now, a lot of people say, this is a little side note here. In the Last Supper, the, the thing Jesus wanted to talk about was unity more than anything else. There's a couple of verses about unity in John 17, but Jesus had an awful lot more to say about prayer if you read through that passage. Look at this. He says, in that day, meaning when I've risen from the dead and ascended to my Father, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Because if they wanted something, who do they have to talk to? Jesus. Because Jesus could intercede before his Father. But he says, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and you will what? Receive whatever you ask and you will receive. Jesus says, up, up till now, you've never gone directly to the Father. You've always had to have a mediator. You've had to have a priest. You've had to have a prophet. You've had to have me. He says, but once I've ascended, there's no need for anybody to stand between you and the Father himself. This is where many high church denominations get it wrong. You need to go through this saint first. You need to go through Mary first. You need to go through the priest first. No, you will ask the Father in Jesus' name. What does it mean to do something in somebody's name? It means with their authority. You come to God with the authority of Jesus. He makes it clear there is a New Testament difference than in the way things were before the cross and after. You have permission and an invitation to pray from Jesus. And it drives me bananas. How many times folks read those verses, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, and choose to preach a sermon making the opposite point. Rather than focusing on asking you will receive, they focus on that in my name part and drill down to the bit that says, now you can't get everything you ask for. Is that true? Well, yeah, James talks about that. But Jesus' point is not to discourage you and limit you and focus your prayers. He's trying to open it up. Ask and you will receive. Well, listen, people have taken it way too far. People take everything way too far. What does it say? You are meant to be overawed by the permission given you to pray by Jesus here. You're meant to be staggered by this. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Your prayers have power. And we do the same thing. We try to do this like, well, God has power. When we pray, we're accessing God. What does it say? The prayer of a righteous man has great power. When you pray, there is power. It's access to the Father provided by the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian access to God that enables you to exercise spiritual power to bring about changes in the physical world. That's what prayer is. Access to God to bring about physical changes by spiritual power. And I hear some of you pulling back on that one. Because you've heard other things. Saying things, well, prayer is about getting to know God. It's not about receiving what you ask for. <sighs> ask, and you will receive. That your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. That you may rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. Ask, and you will receive. Yes, 
That it's about getting close to God. But you read the New Testament and the thing they seem to hammer over and over again is ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Say, Lord, I need. God will say, here you go. There could be no higher permission to pray than access to God in the name of the Son. If Daniel's prayers could be heard, Christian, you're covered by the blood of Jesus. It'll work for you. So we've, we've cleared that first thing up. You have permission to pray. Invited to pray. Okay. So let's second thing. We're going to look at the prescription that the New Testament gives us to take advantage of the permission. Okay, yes, yeah, so we have this, but we don't want to overdo it. Well, the New Testament seems to spend an awful lot of time smacking us in the back of the head and saying, why aren't you praying? Don't you know what Jesus said? For all of our talk about not overdoing it with our prayers, some people in an attempt to push back on some sort of weird prosperity gospel, what they end up doing is discouraging people from praying. And they think that it's somehow more spiritual just to sit there and take it than to get on your knees and seek God's intervention. It's not. The Bible exhorts you to act upon that theology I just laid out and treat prayer like a battle strategy. Ephesians 6, 18. Coming to the end of that, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We get to verse 18. The end of the armor of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. I love that. Praying with all prayer. Do you get the point? Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I've heard it said, the only offensive item in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But after that, what does it say? Praying at all times in the Spirit. That's the other one. And then people will say, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, what did he do? He responded with scripture. Yes, he did. After 40 days of prayer, it was all soaked in this intimate prayer relationship with God. Paul uses words like at all times. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, without ceasing when it comes to prayer. A constant, ongoing, all-day conversation between you and God. You are commanded to pray and to pray a lot, to pray and to keep praying. Luke 18 says that Jesus gave a parable to the effect that we ought always to pray and never lose heart. Always to pray and never give up. The parable of the persistent widow. Well, I prayed and nothing happened. Jesus goes, then why didn't you keep praying? Why don't you keep knocking? Why don't you keep coming? Even a bad judge will give a good judgment if somebody's annoying them. So pester God with prayer, he says. Well, I did pray and, and nothing happened. The New Testament calls your bluff on that. Most of the time, almost every time, when someone says, I prayed and nothing happened, what they meant is I was in a moment, I panicked and I threw up a prayer to God. Or I've thought about praying. Or I've thrown up a few words of prayer. Well, that's good. But have you actually gotten down on your knees, cleared your schedule, cleared the menu, and said, Lord, I'm going to pray until something happens? It's one of those youth group acronyms. Remember that? P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. James 4, 3 and 4. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, I did. Well, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is so blunt, isn't he, when you read his book? 
He was Jesus' brother. Jude was James' other brother. So two of the most blunt books in the Bible come from these guys. Carpenters, stonemasons, workers. And they say, yeah, you didn't pray. No, I didn't. you didn't pray. Because Jesus always answers our prayer. So you didn't pray. Look, I prayed four hours a day. So then there must be something wrong. You must be asking to spend it on your passions. This is something we got to check. Sometimes you come to prayer and first thing God does is he brings you up against your motivation. And he said, that's wrong. Fix this. Or you come up to God and you ask for something. And he says, before we get that, I want to show you what is blocking this blessing that you're praying for. The doctrine of prayer is true because the apostles acted as if it were true and warned us and exhorted us and even got a little tough with us to do the same. Daniel refused to stop praying under pain of death. Do you get that? If you pray, we're going to kill you. We're going to throw you to lions. Okay? 12 o'clock, time for my noon prayer time. Some of us don't even think about prayer until the crisis comes. But what did Jesus say in Mark 9, 29? He came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's the disciples, unable to cast a demon out of a young man. They'd done this before, lots of times. In the name of Jesus, depart. But this demon wasn't going anywhere. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are fighting with him. See, we knew your, your Messiah was nothing. And Jesus shows up. What's going on? Well, we can't cast out the demon. He goes, you faithless generation. Get out of my way. Read that. Jesus is annoyed in that passage. He says, how long will I put up with you? He cast the demon out. And now later on, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, so what was the problem, man? Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus says, this kind comes only out through prayer and fasting. Now, did Jesus intend them to see the demon-possessed boy and say, all right, now give me three days. I'm going to go prayer and fast. No, he expected that they had been living a lifestyle of prayer and fasting so that even when some big old demon that was hard for anybody to cast out showed up, they were ready. It's the same thing for you. You can't expect to face the crisis in the moment and then pray. You've got to be building up a lifestyle of prayer so that when they say things like, no prayers except to the king for 30 days, you say, I've already got an appointment and I can't break it. So that's the prescription. Okay, we know that we've been, we're allowed to pray. We know that we're supposed to pray. Now, how do I do this? This is the practicality of prayer. Some of y'all are here and you go, look, I believe all of that. But I, every time I get down to pray, I feel like I just can't. I feel like I'm a total idiot just talking to the ceiling and nothing's happening. Okay, well, the Bible gives us an awful lot of instruction on prayer. Jesus gave us a ton of instruction on prayer. From the roadmap of prayer down to the place and the posture that we ought to take. Did it ever strike anybody else that when people came to Jesus, the disciples didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach like you? They didn't say, Lord, teach us to do miracles like you? They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, verses 6 through 8? He said, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. I'm going to draw out three practical points for you for your prayer life from those words of Jesus. The first one, find a place where you can be still and quiet. He said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. That's about humility, but it's also about being still before the Lord. If you try to do all your prayer on the commute to work or 
in the, in the loud lunchroom or something like that, then you're going to have a hard time. You've got to take the time to get alone and to get quiet and to get still, to turn off that phone, forget about your grocery list for a while, because you know, once you sit down to pray, everything that you need to do to fix in the house is going to start coming up to your head. Oh, I still got to, guys are looking around, like, oh, that carpet's frayed over there, I should get on. You've got to, that's why we close our eyes, by the way, so that we're not distracted. That's why we fold our hands so that we're not doing something else with it. That's how we bow our head. It's out of reverence to the Lord. Be still and quiet. Even secular psychologists recognize that we've got to be still and quiet more. Because they say when we're always on the phone, we're always going, we're always thinking, we're always talking, we're always listening, then we're overstimulated and we can't focus on anything. Well, the Lord knew that a long time ago. And he said, be still and be quiet before me. So if you're having a hard time praying, you've got to set aside a block of time in a place where you're by yourself. This might mean dad telling your wife and your kids, dad's going to be praying in here from this time to this time. Don't come in. Ladies, kids do the same thing. And respect that for each other. And mom, if dad says that, you can expect that those kids are going to lose their minds and pull the TV over and dump the coffee pot out on the carpet. Because the devil hates it. But honor that. Recognize that that means it's working. That means that there's some warfare going on. Do this for each other. Number two, pray in your own words, not in imitation of a high style. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. <laughs> when we were in Nepal, there were these Hare Krishna guys that were running around. And what they do is they bang drums and they just say the same thing over and over again. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. And they just chant, chant, chant. And they whip themselves up and they'll like swing their hair around and they'll flop on the ground. And it's really just very bizarre and strange to watch. And, you know, I asked Nanda, like, what, are they, what are they saying? He goes, oh, very bad things. I'm like, well, yeah, I got that. But what are they saying? Says, they're just saying, you know, Hare Krishna. They're calling on Krishna. I'm like, but they're not asking for anything? Nope, that's just what they say. And they think that he'll hear them. You go to the Buddhist stupa in Kathmandu, and they say, every time you walk around this giant statue, that counts as one prayer. And so what do they do? They say, okay, if a circle means a prayer, they make these things called prayer wheels with a prayer written on it. And every time you spin it, that's one prayer. So you can sit there and just be doing this all day long, and now I prayed 150 times this morning. They also sell these little things that like, they're like a little spinner with a weight on the end of it, at the end of a string, and you spin it like this, and they'll walk around, guys like in those Buddhist robes and iPod earphones in, that's always hilarious to me, but they're spinning this like, I prayed 20,000 times today. Is that, that's vain repetition, my friend. Or I'm just going to repeat the Our Father a hundred times. Hey, pray the Our Father, it's great, but add your own words to it. Jesus is telling us, man, just talk. You don't got to use all the these and thous and thys unless you want to. Talk to God like you talk to somebody else, somebody else that you respect. And sometimes you feel like you're not even really praying until you start really letting it go. I've had times where I'm angry with God. Not like I'm you know, defying God, but you know, kind of like wrestling with the Lord a little bit. And I'll come in, I'm praying, and I'm all nice, and oh, Lord, you know my heart, you know this and that. And it almost feels like God is just like baiting me. And then finally I'll go, God, why did you do that? And then that's when I feel like the Lord kind of sits down in the chair across from me. He's like, now you're praying. Now let's talk. You don't need to imitate anybody. Pray in your own words. If you're a man of few words, you're probably not going to pray as long prayers as somebody who is very well spoken. If you're very educated, you're probably going to have all kinds of scientific words in your prayer. If not, that's okay. Just come to the Lord. And certainly don't fake 
elaborate prayers to make yourself look good. You ever been in a prayer meeting with somebody like that? I'll tell one story. I have a bunch, but when I was, at, when I was in Lynchburg, you'd get Liberty students that were coming in all the time, and seminary students would come to the prayer meeting, and there was this one guy. Never forget. I, I can't remember his name. That's probably for the best. But he, he, he would always do this. He would quote like 25 scriptures all the way through with the references every time he prayed. And the first time, it was kind of cool. After a while, I realized, he's showing off. He's just showing off. He's not saying, Lord, your word says that, you know, if we call on your name that, that you'll hear us. He'd say, Lord, as your word says in first, you know, Colossians number five, that, 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 and quote the whole thing. And then he would like, oh, I mean, it says this. And I was like, this guy is just showing off. He's just showing off. Don't do that. And then the last one is, this is a relationship and you should expect God to answer you. He said in verse 8, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So yes, we are asking to receive, but you pray in order to get to know the God you're speaking to. Which means, how does this look real practical? After you've prayed, sit still and listen. I don't hear anything. Yeah, you do. You just don't know that you do. Just listen. Just sit there and be silent. And if you feel like the Lord is saying something, you feel like there's a thought that's come into your heart, or if there's a Bible verse that comes on your mind, write it down. See if it doesn't come up later on in the day. Very often, God will give you what's going to happen. Expect God to answer you. Don't come in and, Lord, I've just got to beg and plead. God goes, I'm your dad. I love you. And then Jesus gives us a template prayer that you all know, which I, you know, I learned this the most with my middle school basketball team, which those guys were the biggest bunch of reprobates you've ever met in your life. They were, you know, foul mouthed and foul actions and mean and angry and racist and all the rest of it. All right. All right. Game time. Our father who art in heaven. (laughs) And there were times I was like, should I say something? I was the littlest guy on the team by far. So I shouldn't have. But I was like, this isn't right. You think that God's going to bless your game because you said this prayer. But it's a good one. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Meaning, and you have forgiven your debtors, haven't you? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to give you real quick five parts of prayer you can draw out from that. Okay, I'm in a room, it's silent and quiet. All right, I'm not going to use a highfalutin style, and I'm going to sit still and listen to the Lord. But I still don't know what to say. Well, here's five things that Jesus gives us. Start by worshiping the Lord. Number one, worship. Make a list of things you're going to praise God and thank God for. I listened to a podcast one time and a guy goes, I have, a, I have a thankfulness habit where I get up in the morning and I say 10 things I'm thankful for. I'm like, thankful to whom exactly? <laughs> oh, you know, just thankful. You're thankful to God. Tell God the things he's done. Thank him for them. Worship him. Say, God, I praise you because. And you can tie this to your scripture reading. If it says in the Bible, God is the revealer of mysteries. God, I praise you for you're the revealer of mysteries. I thank you that you revealed to me who my bride was supposed to be. That you revealed to me what I was supposed to do with this job. Thank you, God. Number two is submission. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's good to start every prayer time just by bowing the knee to God and saying, I am your loyal subject. I am your servant and I am your son. And that's a wonderful relationship between son and daughter and father, but it's still a subordinate one, isn't it? 
Submit yourself to God. And sometimes when you start that way, the things that you thought you were going to ask for are kind of like, yeah, that's, that's flesh. That's not Jesus. Number three, ask him for your needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Ask, for God, ask God for what you need. If you need money, ask for money. If you need wisdom, ask for wisdom. If you need help at work, ask for help. If you need God to change something in your life, ask him to do it. And don't be afraid. If you're sick, ask for healing. Ask for your needs. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Repent. Ask God to forgive you for the things you've done. Keep a clean slate between you and God. When you sin, you make it a priority to get into a room where you can pray and ask God to forgive you for that sin. It's all been cleansed at the cross, but don't, don't rack up an account with God that's going to keep you from praying later. And then finally, he says, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ask for help. God, I'm trying to do your commandments, but it's hard. I'm trying to not bow down to the statue, but look at the size of that furnace, Lord. God, I, I want to be honest, but look at this. I want to be good to my wife, but I'm having such a hard time. God, I want ask for help to do what God has called you to do. Start with worship. Bow the knee and submit to the Lord's will like Jesus did. Ask for your needs. Repent of your sins. And then just ask God for help. Prayer is like a muscle. You have to do it to get good at it. And some of you are like, okay, I'm going to pray an hour every day this week. I hope you do. But if you have not prayed for like months before this, try for five minutes a day this week. Well, that's so short. All right. Then it should be no problem for you to do it, right? Go for six minutes if you're feeling strong. It's like when you go into workout and you say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squat 500 pounds today. When's the last time you squatted? Oh, 25 years ago. It's not going to work, man. Well, I tried it and it didn't work for me. Well, of course it didn't. You didn't work up to it. You didn't build up that strength. Sometimes you say, but all I, all I have the, the patience or the time to do is this, and it doesn't sound very good, and sometimes I feel frustrated. Hey, something is better than nothing. Some people like to have prayer journals. They like to write out their prayers. Some people like to go for a walk and pray. I'm one of those people. Because if I sit still, my knees are going to start bouncing. I'll walk figure eights in this room and pray. I also do it when I'm reading my commentary. Some of y'all have caught me. But I got to be moving when I pray. Don't try it in bed. Just, you're going to fall asleep. Well, I won't fall asleep. I, I usually lie awake in bed for like an hour every night. Yeah, but you try to pray, and the devil's going to send the Sandman to put you to sleep. Some people even get critical of other people and the way they pray, even though they don't. Oh, that, I would never go to a prayer meeting like that. I'd never go to a prayer meeting where they speak in tongues. I'd never go to a prayer meeting that's so quiet and boring and nobody's getting excited. Well, when's the last time you went to prayer? Well, yeah, I don't really have time. Well, don't criticize what someone else is doing. Somebody doing it badly is some, better than somebody doing it not at all, isn't it? We love to criticize athletes and quarterbacks and you know, point guards, like, ah, come on, this guy stinks. Yeah, well, at least he's playing, man. At least he's in the game. This pitcher's no good. Pull him out. I do that. My, my uh, kids will hear me do that whenever the Nationals pitcher isn't doing good. The guy's manager's name is Davey Martinez. I'll be like, pull him, Davey. Pull him out of there. And Mike goes like, what's happening? Who's Davey? I'm like, well, that's Davey. He needs to pull this pitcher out of there. And, you know, you get there and you get all, all angry about it. But it's like, hey, man, at least he's in the game. So are you in the game or are you just full of all kinds of theories about how you might do it? Daniel had habits. He would face Jerusalem, lift his hands, and pray three times a day. And if you don't have anything else, why not try that? 
five minutes before I go to work, five minutes during my lunch break, five minutes right when I get home from work. First thing, I'm going to go out on my back porch. I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to pray for five minutes out loud. Well, that seems sort of legalistic. Well, if you don't have anything, find something and do that. You could do a lot worse. And fourth, okay, so that was a little bit longer. So we looked at the permission we have to pray, the prescription or the commandment to pray, and some practicalities about how to do it. Now let's get hyped up to pray at the end by looking at the power of prayer. It is way too easy for Calvary Chapel people to hear a great Bible study, absorb it, believe it, repeat it, and do nothing with it. So let's get hyped up a little bit here. Prayer. Go home and make a list of everything you can remember in the Bible of things that God has done in answer to prayer. And then all of your testimonies and all the testimonies you can think of. And then go online and look up some more. Prayer heals the sick. If God has healed your body physically through prayer, raise your hand in this room. Look around. Look around. Don't let anybody tell you God is not healing anymore. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Prayer heals the sick. Prayer calls down fire from heaven. Prayer saves souls. How many of you can say you were saved because somebody you loved had been praying for you a long time and then you finally came? Look around, you guys. Prayer saves souls. Why didn't you look around? Look around at the hands that are in the air. Good grief. Prayer saves souls. Prayer brings down kingdoms. Prayer changes rulers. Prayer, as we're going to see in chapter 10, empowers angels and defeats devils. Isn't that cool? The angel is going to tell Daniel, I, as soon as you started praying, I came, but I fought for three weeks against the prince of Persia. Not the video game, the demon. The prince of Persia. And he says, but, and Daniel prayed for three weeks. Man, what if Daniel had stopped praying? Why do you think Jesus wanted to hammer into us? Keep praying and don't stop. It provides money. How many of you can say that the Lord provided financially for you when you prayed? Raise your hand. Look around. Look around. Come on now. These are people that have been financially provided for through prayer. It's carnal to talk about money. No, it's not. It's about the provision of God. How many of you have just been sitting at home and all of a sudden you have a thought, I wonder how such and such is doing. And then you've just been put on your heart to give them some money. Anybody ever have that before? That's because they were praying and God said, sure thing, I got just the guy. And you find out later that's exactly what they needed. And prayer soothes the soul. Don't you just feel better when you pray? Every time you pray, every time I pray, I'm like, I should do this more often. That was great. Man, I just feel like I was talking to the Most High God. Wow. All my doubts seem so stupid right about now. And then the next time I got to pray, it's like, oh, man, but you know, I got that meeting at 11. I got that thing. Okay, so you know, I'll, I'll do it later. I found that if I don't do it now, I will never do it later. Look at what Jesus said. John 14, 12 through 14. I don't have life verses, but if I did, it'd probably be these. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, you know what I do. If you believe in Jesus, please raise your hands. All right, this verse is about you. Not apostles, not prophets, not champions, not pastors. You. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What are some of the works that Jesus did? Healing. Walked on water. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cleansed the leper. He caused the fig tree to shrivel. I mean, right? He raised the dead a couple times. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, 
because I'm going to the Father. And there are some tiresome people that look at that and say, now what Jesus meant is evangelism because he didn't lead anybody to Christ. That's not what he says. The word erga in the book of John specifically refers to miracles in this context. So greater works, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus is like, I'm going to be at home, like monitoring everything and making sure everybody gets what they need. I'm going to give you my spirit. So therefore, he ties it now to prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And in case you didn't get it, he repeats it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What more do you need than that? The lofty promises of Christ to exceed his ministry tied to what? Prayer. It's so funny that we like want to defend Jesus against his own words. Well, I never want anybody to exceed Jesus. He does. He says, you are in me and my spirit is in you and I'm multiplying you across the world with the express purpose of continuing, expanding and exceeding my work by prayer. As you go about your life and the mission, you need the Lord's help and prayer is how we get it. In the book of Acts, verse 30, chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why is it that so many Christians would rather attend a rally asking that prayer be put back in school than attend their own prayer meeting at their own church? Leonard Ravenhill said that. He says, I don't know if we need to worry about putting prayer in school until we put prayer back in church. He was a fiery guy, that dude. And why are we so obsessed with the exceptions to the rule? We want to talk about prayer, and all we want to do is defend God's reputation against answers that might not come. Yeah, God's a person. Sometimes he'll say no because he knows better than you. But the vast majority of texts in Scripture tell you, ask and you will receive. Haven't we seen some amazing testimonies in this church? Wouldn't you think that after God's provided more than $100,000 for us, and after the Lord has given us like half a dozen healing miracles, and after God has given dreams and visions and the gifts to the church, you'd think that we'd like never want to do anything else but pray. But we're flagging. This church is flagging in prayer. I'm not sure why. But I've said it from the beginning, and I'll repeat it again today. This church is going to be built by prayer or not at all. I have no interest in building another nice church. We've got tons of those, and they're great. I love them. But I'm not going to pour all of my time and energy into something that is just going to be nice. I want to see the Lord transform this community, transform this world. And I'm going to do that by leading us to pray, to get on our knees and seek the Lord's supernatural intervention. When the devil sees God's people succeeding, he will pull the plug on prayer first, like Daniel. But Daniel didn't even consider stopping his prayers, even for a month. That's because prayer has the power to change the world. Because prayer accesses God's power. And I believe it was E.M. Bounds who said, because prayer has access to the power of God, prayer in that sense is omnipotent. I love edgy quotes about prayer because they get us excited. I adjure you to commit afresh to a life of prayer. Break through the, find the limits of what God will do. I don't know what they are, but I bet you haven't hit them yet. Y'all know, I'll close with this. One of my favorite movies is, is Miracle. 
which is uh, the hockey movie about when the USA was playing the Soviet team in 1980. And in kind of the, before the last act, they play the team in an exhibition game and they lose, by, they lose 10 to 3, which is a huge thing in hockey if you don't know that. And so the coach goes up to the goalie, like 10 goals, right? And he goes up to him and he tells him he's going to be replacing him with the backup. And the guy gets mad at him. He's like, we're just about to go to the Olympics and now you're going to pull me out. And the coach tells him, he's like, look, man, it's, it's, too, it's too much for you. This is obviously too hard. And the guy goes, I've given you everything I've got. And here's my favorite quote. Coach says to him, he says, have you given me your very best? Because I know there's a lot more in you. A whole other level that for some reason you just don't want to go to. I'm going to say those words to us as a church together. There's a lot more depth to be plunged in prayer in this church. There's a whole other level that the Lord could take us to. I feel like we've tasted what those things feel like. But this can't just be the place where you come and we hear our weekly religious podcast. This has got to be a time where we connect with God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to see God change things that way. Don't let the rules of men or the circumstances of your life or the personality God gave you keep you from God. When they say no, even if that's your flesh that says no, pray anyway. 